Okay, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, uh, wherever you are in the world. Uh, welcome to Free Association. Uh, this is a stand in the park on Sunday morning. Uh, it's now Sunday afternoon. I've just got back from a stand in the park about about an hour ago, back about about 12 noon. Um, the, the meeting actually starts at 10 a.m., and it's, if you know Newcastle, it's in Leeser's Park uh, by, by the pond, by the duck pond, and by the cafe, by the duck pond. So it's my first visit to any kind of activists meeting or protest meeting. I wouldn't describe it necessarily as a protest meeting. It's just a, a place for people to meet each other. Who might be doing some things that are act that are, that are active in the community? Um, it's roughly about twenty people there, somewhere between twenty and thirty, uh, over the course of the morning. And there seem to be printing leaflets and distributing leaflets and making banners and making placards and meeting at roundabouts and and generally raising awareness i like these people in all honesty i like them they're they're from all walks of life from all stratas of society so it's a place where those kind of boundaries don't mean anything because we're all after the same thing we're all after freedom of choice and we're all after finding a way to, to have good health and finding a way to make the world a safer place for the children. So it's it was an interesting morning. I spoke to a couple of people and said hello to a few others. Um, and they looked like <laughs> they looked to me like the Rebel Alliance. They they look like activists. But that's just because I don't know what activists look like. Welcome to the room, P PBG. Good to see somebody's here. So, as I said, from all, all walks of life. So we've got people who are homeschooling, people who are retired, people who are 17. Very, very different types of people, but all getting together to make a stand in the park. And that's kind of the point. So talk to people, find out what other people think. Spread what you what you think's happening. Talk about what what you think's happening. Find out where the flaws are in your arguments. Find out what's what's more real than what than not, and just talk to people. The idea is just to to meet some people. So I met. I think I probably spoke to about eight people out of the twenty. I didn't speak to everybody. I spoke to a couple of people. For a reasonable length of time, and they're they're good people. They've definitely got their hearts in the right place, and I like them. So I'll go back next week, and I'll keep going back uh, over the course of uh, the next next year or two until this thing's sorted out. It might take more than a year or two as well. It might take five five or six years. Who knows? It might take ten years, but we've got to start somewhere. And a stand in the park is. Is, is one of the places to start for me 
I can talk about this stuff all, all I want all day long on the radio show. But uh, I, at some point, I have to physically get out there and do something. And this might be one route for me doing that, that I find okay. I'm, uh, I'm cautious about joining groups. I always have been. And I'm an introvert. I'm not, I'm not known for being stood on a, on a platform with a microphone. It's not the way I am. But I've had enough of this stuff. I've had enough and I'm going to stand up. I'm going to stand up and be counted. And if I end up on a platform with a microphone, then so be it. But uh, that's not my first choice. But if it's necessary, then I'll do it. Because I really have had enough of this stuff. I've had enough of people telling me rubbish. I've had enough of people telling me lies about vaccines and lies about viruses and lies about my immune system. And I think I think it's time that I took, took some kind of a stand and made myself more visible and made myself more av- available as a, as a channel for, for other people. Because there's, there's a time and a place for being, being quiet and having quiet conversations in the corner. And there's a time for being public. And I think now's the time for being public about it and encouraging other people to be public. So all it takes is one or two people to, to make a stand and you end up with 20 in the park on a Sunday morning. And this, this meeting's evidence of that. So I'm going to put it on my list of places to be. And I'm going to investigate. I've, I've got a few Telegram groups to investigate now that they're part, that they're kind of involved with. So I've signed up to a, a few new Telegram groups. And I'm going to find more local people. I'm going to find more local activists. And I'm going to make myself a part of something local. I don't know what yet. It'll To start with, a stand in the park is a good place to be. But it might lead to somewhere else. It might lead to another group, who knows. But uh, this is this is a visible one that I know about, so this is the place I start. And they're worldwide. It's not just the UK. I know for a fact that there's groups in Australia and there's groups in Ireland. There's probably groups in Europe by now as well. So it's worth taking a look. Uh, standinthepark.org, I think it was. .org, or just look for a stand in the park and put your put your city in. And if you if you don't have a local group, you can register a local group and start one. Uh, meet at ten o'clock on a Sunday morning in the park. Find a bandstand or a cafe or something, uh, and just mark it down as a thing that happens and wait for people to show up. Uh, and if this one hadn't existed, I would have put one down myself. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, I've enjoyed the morning. It's been it's been sunny, so I've got my vitamin D sorted out for the day. I stood around for an hour and a half, chattering, and then and then came home and had a bit of porridge. So that's pretty much it. All all being well, I'll be there next week. And uh, I'll get to know a few people a bit more. I can't remember anybody's names at the moment. I'm 
rubbish at meeting new people. So it takes me three or four times and then I'll get used to people and they'll get used to me and, uh, and we'll take the relationship from there, the friendship from there. Yeah, it looks like I'm doing a show now, so I might as well carry on. Uh, let's have a look at BitChute and see what's going on on Bitch for the last couple of days. Been there since then. So let's see see what's new. Dolores Cahill is all over Bitchute, so uh, as it's a sequel to The Fall of the Cabal, Robert Kennedy Jr. is all over as well. Let's play a bit of Robert Kennedy Jr. This is Big Farmer's Global War. And it's on Bitchute. Hello, everybody. I'm very, very happy to be here at the second annual Buddhist COVID-19 conference. And I want to thank my friend, Dr. Laszlo Boros, for inviting me here. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the things that I've learned from researching for my new book. And I, I hope many of you will read this book and will purchase it. The name of the book is uh, The Real Dr. Anthony Fauci. You can go to Amazon and get it. The subtitle is Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health. And I want to say it's a full disclosure that I make no money on the book. All the profits, my profits, go directly to Children's Health Defense, where they will fund our litigation, our advocacy, our communications and all the research that we do that is um i think very very important to our entire community uh, one of the things that i've learned from researching this book and by the way um one of the things that you can do is to buy the book because i i'm getting pre-purchases of the book we're now over about ten thousand if we can get to 20,000, it goes on the New York Times bestseller list and it will automatically go on Amazon's bestseller list, which will make Amazon really mad, which is somebody, something everybody here should be happy about. One of the things, you know, I've really taken a deep dive into Anthony Fauci and his history. I've looked into his uh, HIV research and the whole history with the AZT and the fraud that was involved there. The children who died in those experiments, nobody doing things, kind of research, that a deep dive that nobody has done before. But one of the things that I has been most revealing to me has been to, to, to be able to trace and track the military and intelligence agency involvement in this entire biosecurity agenda. 
and Tony Fauci and Bill Gates have been the front people for. But it's an agenda. A lot of us look around and they see all of these countries doing the same, imposing the same totalitarian controls in lockstep with each other. And at every level of government, and we wonder to ourselves, how is this possible? How did they all know what to do? One of the aspects of my research that I've been able to uncover that nobody else has really been able to, has, has realized before, many of us saw Event 201, which was what they call the tabletop simulation of a pandemic that was sponsored by Bill Gates and by some of the intelligence agencies. Um, immediately before the pandemic. In fact, in October of 2019, when the coronavirus was already circulating in Wuhan, and you had Bill Gates and all of these top media people and intelligence agency people and from many, many countries coming together in New York and simulating a pandemic. And as it turns out, and they, they were extraordinarily, uh, they, they, it was an extraordinary piece of augering of, of, of foresight of prescience. They seemed to be able to uncannily predict all the things would happen, that it was would be a, a laboratory-generated coronavirus that would begin in China that was spread across the world. As it turns out, they, the event 201 was not a unique event. The military, the intelligence apparatus, and Bill Gates and NIH, Tony Fauci began um, doing these simulations, and I've found over 20 of them now, at around the same time the, the anthrax attacks occurred in 2001, which was really the beginning of the new biosecurity agenda. Let me give you a little bit of a historic background. When I was seven years old, President Dwight Eisenhower made them one of the most important speeches in American history, where he warned the American people about that our country would never be destroyed by a foreign enemy. We were too strong and we were too isolated in the world. And he warned that our democratic institutions would be subverted and our country's soul would be destroyed by the military industrial complex, which he said was growing too big and would soon overwhelm our democracy. And this was a week before my uncle, John F. Kennedy, took the oath of office. And my uncle spent three years fighting the military-industrial complex. He fired Alan Dulles, the top two people, his two deputies at the CIA. He fought with his Pentagon brass for the next three years. He refused to send combat troops into Laos. He refused to send them into Vietnam. He refused to invade Cuba. Um, and in the end, he was killed. And then uh, six months after his death, Vietnam was an American war. He never, my uncle never sent a combat troop to Vietnam. President John, the, the brass wanted 250,000. President Johnson ended up sending 500,000 men and it became an American war and the military industrial complex had won. My uncle ran against President Johnson. I mean, my father ran against President Johnson in 1968, running against the Vietnam War, running against the military industrial complex, and he was killed in that process. In 1988, something extraordinary happened. The Soviet Union collapsed, the walls came down in Berlin, and we were promised that we would get a peace dividend 
how we would no longer have to, have to spend a billion dollars on stealth bombers that could not fly in the rain. And all that money was going to go come back to American to civilian use to be put into schools and hospitals and roads and bridges and, and railroads. And we were going to build them an education. And we were going to build America into what it was always supposed to be, the shining city on the hill, the example to the rest of mankind of what democracy could accomplish when people from every nation work together in one nation in the United States to build a, uh, a model democracy. Well, that peace dividend, when we heard it, we thought that's going to be wonderful. But when the military-industrial complex heard that phrase, they said, wait a minute, that's going to come out of our pockets. And five years later, we had the first attack on the World Trade Center in 1993. And all that money that was headed towards civilian use suddenly stopped. And we began investing money in the new enemy to replace the Cold War. And that was Islamic terrorism. And terrorism had a great allure to the military-industrial complex because it's not a nation. It wouldn't let us down like the Soviets did and collapse. It was a tactic, not a country. And it would never go away. And Dick Cheney promised the long war that we would be able to fight in 50 nations around the world. And uh, um, but, the, but Islamic terrorism had its own drawbacks, which was in the United States, it was killing fewer people every year than lightning strikes. And it was hard to justify this huge diversion of American wealth of our GDP toward a, something that really wasn't threatening people in their homes. But from the beginning, from 2001, when we had the World Trade Center attack, the big attack, the military industrial complex was already looking at germs and germ warfare and biosecurity as the future of its financial prospects and its power prospects because germs are so much better than Islamic terrorists, terrorists because they can get in it. Islamic terrorists can destroy a couple of buildings and maybe blow up some airliners, but germs can go into every American home and kill their occupants. And so it's a wellspring of fear. There's nothing like germs. Like, and the uh, three weeks after the 9-11 attack, we had an anthrax attack that was sent to a number of senators and to people in the press, and they killed a number of Americans. And it was blamed on Saddam Hussein, and it was the reason that the newspapers drummed up jingoistic hysteria against Saddam Hussein that he had these biological weapons of mass destruction and it justified the war that we brought on him. He had nothing to do with 9-11. He had nothing to do with anthrax. A year later, the FBI completed its investigation and said that the anthrax that was used in that attack had come from the U.S. military laboratory. So somebody associated with the U.S. Army had, for their own reasons, sent out that anthrax. And by then, we were pumping billions of dollars into biosecurity. Prior to the anthrax attacks, we were spending about $130 million a year in biosecurity. Afterwards, we were spending six or eight billion. And Anthony Fauci struggled to get his part of that. And he ended up getting about $1.6 billion a year 
from the military, from BARDA, from DARPA, from the Pentagon. And at that point is when he started doing these gain-of-function studies. And the gain-of-function studies are what they call dual-use studies. They're the studies that allow you to pretend that you're developing a vaccine, but you're actually developing a bioweapon. The military was interested in that. We signed a treaty in 1972 that said we can't develop bioweapons anymore, but we can develop vaccines and dual-use technology. Well, the military industrial complex began funneling huge amounts of money into that, what they call biodefense, but it was really about developing weapons technology um, of increase, increasing the pathogenesis of wild uh, coronaviruses and flu viruses and other viruses to make them transmissible, to make them more uh, pathogenic to humans, to make them more uh, virulent and more deadly in humans. And of course, Tony Fauci in 2014, a number of his little bugs escaped from labs across, three labs across our country and 300 prominent scientists and a letter to President Obama saying, don't let Tony Fauci do any more of these experiments. He shut down 21 of those studies, but he began funneling studies through a a, a zoologist grifter who was associated with the U.S. military, Peter Daszak, he, and he began, Fauci began laundering money through Daszak into the Wuhan lab to develop uh, bugs in that lab. And um, and that was part of the huge military. Tony Fauci has a $6.1 billion civilian budget and $1.6 billion budget that comes from the military. So his total budget is about $7.7 billion. And uh, his military functions are absolutely critical to his power. He's able to give away an extraordinary amount of money every year. He gives away about 13 times what Bill Gates gives away annually. NIH has about 300,000 scientists on its payroll doing experiments, mainly drug development, running clinical trials across, around the globe. And virtually all the virologists in the world are, in pulp, are employed in that effort. And that's why every virologist in the world knew when they saw the genetic sequence to the coronavirus. They knew that it was laboratory generated, and yet none of them spoke out for a year. The orthodoxy, the omerta, held for a year. Why is that? Because all of them are taking money from Tony Fauci. And that's how he exercises control. He can destroy careers. He can make you, he can ruin institutions, whole universities in our country like Harvard, Baylor, uh, Berkeley, Columbia are getting hundreds of millions of dollars a year from Tony Fauci. And if they do the wrong kind of science, if there's a faculty member of those universities who say, wait a minute, I want to study the links between vaccines and autism. A deputy of Tony Fauci will call the dean at that university and say, if you let that clown do that research, we will, we will bankrupt your university. So he not only dictates what science gets done, he dictates what science does not get done around the globe, and he dictates the outcome of that science. He's the most, he's the most powerful medical official in history. And as we've seen now, he has the power to shut down the global economy, to 
you know, to bankrupt businesses, to shut down churches, to suspend our constitution. As he was, he, as he was accumulating this money and power, the military and Bill Gates and Tony Fauci and the intelligence agencies were practicing these simulations. And as I said, they did about 20 of them between 2000 and 2020. And what they would do is they would, each one of them would bring in different groups of people. And they weren't, they were, they were simulating a, a global pandemic. Uh, they weren't doing any of the things that you would want them to do, which is how do you prepare for a pandemic? How do you make sure, how do you build people's immune systems? How do you warehouse and stockpile vitamin D? and vitamin C and zinc and the things that people are going to need that are going to make them healthier. How do you train the population to stop you know, drinking sugar drinks How and to improve their diets and get exercise? How do you develop a communications infrastructure so that when you do get a pandemic, all of the doctors are talking to each other and, and the people who are on the front line developing treatments like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine they're able to report those in a way that um, that will bring get attention for the things that actually are working around the globe and allow doctors to treat patients in different ways and and communicate with each other to a central repository for that information. How do you develop isolation hospitals, which is traditionally what we used to do with people who are sick? You put them in an isolation hospital. You know. You don't isolate healthy people. You isolate the sick. You isolate the vulnerable. You don't take an older person who gets sick and put them in a nursing home with a lot of older people who are not sick and kill them all. None of that was discussed. It was never discussed in any of these simulations. How do we preserve constitutional rights in a pandemic? In the United States Constitution, there is no pandemic exception. And by the way, in the American Revolution, the, the framers of the Constitution knew all about pandemics. During the American Revolution, the armies of New England, George Washington's armies, were sidelined for three months because of a smallpox epidemic. So when they wrote the Constitution, they were very much aware that, that epidemics could have a a devastating effect on society, on the military, on security, but they didn't make an exception. And these things were never discussed. There was no soul searching about it. You know, do we need censorship? And there was no uh, investigation whether, whether masks work, whether uh, ice, social isolation or social, social distancing, work, whether lockdowns were, none of that was explored. There was no science done on those, none commissioned. The only thing they practiced in all of those pandemic simulations was how do we impose draconian totalitarian controls on the society? How do we use the pandemic as a provocation to remove constitutional rights from populations, from democratic societies all over the globe? And how do we do it simultaneously? And what they did is they drilled it again and again and again. And each one of these drills had famous people in it, like Senator Sam Nunn, who's the, they had top CIA people, they had senators, they had congressmen. 
and people like Madeline Albright who would who would give the the this you know this scenario an air of legitimacy and of a, and of collective authority. And each one of them did the exact same thing. They kept drilling. You know, how, what do we do? How do we censor the press? How do we censor the social media? How do we lock people in their homes? How do we shut down businesses? How do we suspend jury trials for the whole population? How do we suspend due process of law? How do we shut down businesses without having to compensate people? And they drilled it again and again and again that this militarized response to a pandemic was the only permissible response. There was no medical response. It was a weaponized vaccine and militarized totalitarian authoritarian controls. And they did it again and again and again and again. And each time they had more and more people. So, and they were doing most of them in, in top secret, but they were doing the country simultaneously in all the nations of Europe and Canada and Mexico and all around the world. They were doing the same thing with the top officials, but also they were drilling in some cases, tens of thousands of people were participating in local hospitals, uh, local first responders, firefighters, paramedics, police, um, FBI, CIA, all of these different groups were involved. And what is the effect of that? The effect of it is that all of these people know what their role is when it comes, and none of them are going to question it. None of them are suddenly going to do soul searching and say, wait a minute. Are you sure the vaccines work? Are you sure we should be giving experimental type vaccines to entire global populations? Vaccines that we know can have long-term effects that have never been tested before. Fertility effects, autoimmune diseases, cancers that have, uh, have long diagnostic horizons. So you won't see them in a three-month study that have long incubation periods. How do we know? that there's no pathogenic priming like we saw in the animals with these vaccines where people, yeah, they develop a, an antibody, an admirable, robust antibody response. But two years later, when they contract, the, when they become exposed to the wild virus, they actually may get sicker and they may even die, which is what happened to the animals. How do we not, how do we mandate this for 7 billion people? It's never been done before, nothing like that. Why would anybody go along with that? With an experimental technology, it's insane. And yet we do it because they were drilled again and again and again. And all of these simulations use the techniques that were developed over the past 30 years by, or 40 years or 50 years by intelligence agencies about how to impose centralized controls on indigenous societies and you know all of these techniques these psychological warfare techniques are about going into a indigenous country and shattering social relationships destroying the economy demoralizing the people creating chaos so that in the end a large number of that population are so frightened that you put the entire population under house arrest and you you induce in them a psychological state and intelligence agents and uh, psychological warfare experts call Stockholm Syndrome, where the people who are locked up and 
isolated become, begin to empathize with their captors, and they become um, and they become obedient and compliant, and they believe that the only way that they can escape is through absolute obedience, and that is the purpose of these techniques, which is to you know isolation, etc., which is to, to induce those states and the population as a whole. And the CIA did these um, experiments, about 145 of these different experiments in different 145 different colleges and universities in the United States and Canada during the 50s and 60s. And one of the most famous of these, and they were about how do you control populations? How do you control human behavior? How do you shatter um, the, the social relationships so that people will become obedient? independent people with a tradition of freedom of, of independence of irreverence how do you how do you overcome those things overcome their conscience and get them to comply with something that they know is wrong and one of the famous experiments that they um, that took place during the late 1960s is called the Milgram experiment and in that experiment a Yale psychologist called Stanley Milgram uh, recruited about uh, 50 volunteers and he would have those volunteers stand in a room with a man who looked like a doctor standing behind him in a white laboratory coat and the volunteer would be instructed to turn a dial which he believed was giving an electric shock to a person in the next room who he couldn't see but he could hear their screams he could hear their pleadings for mercy for him to stop. And he would be ordered to do it. And despite the screaming, they would do it anyway. And many of the subjects of this experiment were crying. They were begging the doctor to let them stop. And the doctor would tell them, no, you got to keep going. And if the doctor ordered them to do it, 67% of Americans of every walk of life, these were doctors, lawyers, college professors, construction workers, 67% of them gave fatal levels of electricity, 450 volts to the subject, knowing that it might kill them and, and not wanting to do it, but doing it because a doctor, a man, a lab coat ordered them to. And what Milgram determined is that authority that that authority will trump conscience in most people. And this is a lesson that the, um, that the intelligence agencies have learned, that if you put somebody up there globally, who you call a doctor, who's wearing a white lab throat coat, who has the air of authority, and he tells you to do things, even if he tells you wear a mask today, or wear a mask don't work, and then a week later he tells you to put on a mask, no scientific study cited. You'll do what you're told, and then he, and then a month after that, he tells you now put on two masks. You'll do it, and you'll keep putting them on and on as long as that guy keeps telling you to do it. And what they, what all of these psychological warfare techniques are designed to do is to overcome critical thought, overcome any kind of spiritual connection that we have, any kind of analytical mind and to override
override democracy, to override our conscience, to override our capacity for critical thought and get us to comply. And, um, you know, they drilled it again and again and again. And and the, the first big one of these was called Operation Lockstep because the point was to get many, many different government agencies and individuals from the corporate world, from the uh, from the medical regulators, from the military, from the intelligence agencies, from the local police, from the first responders in countries across the globe, all to walk in lockstep and all to do the same thing at the same time to enslave our societies and to, uh, and to clamp down these uh, these suffocating totalitarian controls. And so what I would say to all of you is I want it by being there today at this conference, you are resisting. And that's what we all need to do. We need to resist. We need to educate each other. And we need to teach, reteach our brothers and sisters who are not in that room with you how to come back to the world of critical thinking and how to see the truth of what is happening to all of us around the globe to reclaim our, our democracy, to reclaim our governments, to reclaim public health, and to protect our children. Thank you all very much. Okay, that's Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, on BitChute. That's called Big Farmers Global War. If you want to Take a look at the the video. Right, we're coming up to 40 minutes, and I wasn't going to do a radio show today. I was just going to do a 10-minute short podcast thing. So I've already run over time, so I'm going to close the room up, PBG. Uh, I'll probably come back on later on. I'm, there's definitely a show to this evening. It's 7 o'clock my time, 7 o'clock UK time. Uh, I've got live from the laundry room at seven o'clock, which is a conversation with Freedom Warrior uh, that we do more or less every week now. It's turned into a regular thing, that. So so that'll definitely be there. That's usually 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, so I'll be back for that. Uh, in the meantime, um, I'm going to close this up. And uh, thanks for coming in, though. Much appreciated. Uh, and I'll see you, see you this evening.